0: Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat shalom. We're in a continuing series, uh, the book of Proverbs. Today is part three. We're going to look today at a variety of Proverbs on marriage, uh, children, and family. So, we're going to start uh, the overheads with Proverbs 2, verse 16 to 17. We're going to move to Proverbs 3, uh, verses there from there, and then Proverbs 5, and we can move down to 18, 20, 22, 23. So, a variety of different Proverbs, and they're all listed on, on the overhead there. Wisdom will save you also from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before the Lord. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't resent his rebuke, because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. May your fountain be blessed. May you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May you ever be captivated by her love. Why be captivated, my son, by an adulteress? Why embrace the bosom of another man's wife? He who finds a wife finds a good thing, and receives favor from the Lord. If a man curses his father or mother, his lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. Listen to your father who gave you life, and don't despise your mother when she's old. The father of a righteous man has great joy. He was a wise son delights in him. May your father and mother be glad. May she who gave you birth rejoice. Amen. Well, we're looking today at what, what the book of Proverbs says about family relationships the relationship uh, of, of spouse to spouse, uh, of parent to child, uh, and child to parent. Now, now, some of you here today are married, uh, and some of you aren't. Some of you are married with kids, some of you are married with no children. Uh, those with kids, some of you have children who are still at home. Uh, for some of you, your children have grown and, and moved out. So in all these different passages we just read, there's something here today for everyone. So let's look at what the book of Proverbs says uh, about these relationships on the overhead here. From spouse to spouse, and number two, uh, parent to child, and then number three, uh, children uh, to parents. First, what does the book of Proverbs say about the relationship of a husband and wife? The first thing we're told here is the relationship of a spouse to spouse of marriage is a covenantal relationship. It's a relationship based on covenant. Look at Proverbs 2:16. Wisdom will save you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words, who's left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. Now, marriage is a covenant, a binding agreement. On the overhead, It's it's equal parts love uh, and law. It's a legally binding, publicly made commitment to share your entire life with someone till death do you part. It's both a sacred promise before God and also a legally binding contract in law. It's both. And as a covenant, it has stipulations binding on both sides. And it has blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. Now, I've heard plenty of people mock this in today's world, uh, both the sacred aspect and the legally binding aspects uh, of marriage. And we've all heard this argument to, why do I need a piece of paper to tell someone that I love them? Why do I need a piece of paper to declare my love for somebody? And of course, you don't need a piece of paper to say you love someone. But marriage is so much more than this. It's a legally binding public commitment to your spouse. For life, for richer or poor, for better or worse, in sickness and in health, till death do you part. And it's a sacred covenant made before God. And if you listen carefully to the vows at a wedding, it isn't so much a declaration of your present love uh, as it is a promise of future love. If you listen to almost any wedding ceremony, you'll see how the vows say nothing about how you feel now. It's says it nothing about your feelings. It's about behavior. There's nothing in the vows about how I feel now. The vows are always promises to be, promises to be tender, to be considerate, to be faithful, to be loving in the future for the rest of our lives under any circumstances. That's what the vows are because marriage is a covenant it's not just a declaration of present love it's a promise of future love now people in our secular individualistic independent world uh, of, of a modern western society they don't like that they feel the walls are closing in on them uh, they try to argue against the traditional biblical view of marriage uh, and they say oh maybe it'll lead to abuse or neglect but not if the couple are living according to the biblical principles of honoring God's ways. Abuse and neglect can happen anywhere uh, in our fallen world. Uh, but the fact is, actually, it actually happens far more in non-traditional marriages uh, and in living arrangements where, where no lifelong commitment is made, which tend to um, especially leave the woman vulnerable uh, in many cases and unprotected. Now, not only does the book of Proverbs say that marriage is based on a covenant, it's also to be based on a ministry mindset. That's because in Ephesians 5 and other scriptures, they tell us marriage is meant to be a picture of our heavenly union with the Lord, a picture of Messiah's relationship with us, his bride. And this relationship is only possible because of the self-sacrificial covenant love of Yeshua, our bridegroom God, his love for us, his bride. Whereby he gave himself up for us, laid down his life for us. And this gives us the pattern, Paul tells us, of how we, uh, how our husbands are now supposed to love their wives. Self-sacrificially, laying down their lives for their bride. So our marriages, we read in Ephesians 5, are to be a picture of the relationship between Messiah and his redeemed people. And our marriage covenant, therefore, is to be based on a, a mindset of ministry. And there are two factors a combined in marriage, according to the book of Proverbs, that are historically and practically very notable uh, on the overhead. The first is faithfulness to your spouse as your single and exclusive object of romantic love and the fulfillment, the single and exclusive object of all all your romantic passions and desires. Now, there's obviously outlaws, adultery, and and fornication. And by the way, this also is one of the many reasons why pornography is so destructive. Because it robs your wife of this exclusive and singular role and focus and diverts your romantic desires and attention away from her and toward other objects. Proverbs 5, 18, may your fountain be blessed, may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving deer, a graceful doe. May you ever be intoxicated by her love. Why my son be captivated by another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? This says your spouse should be your lover. Your relationship with your spouse should be characterized by love and romance. This is contrasted here with the adulterous woman uh, in Proverbs 2.17, who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God. The the Hebrew word here for partner is aluf, uh, which means your most intimate best friend. Your your spouse is supposed to be your intimate best friend on the overhead. So the book of Proverbs says relationship uh, with your spouse is supposed to be characterized both by romance and and by intimate friendship there should be passion and romance and your spouse should be your best friend do you have both ask yourself ask your spouse now as i said this is historically incredibly notable because in traditional societies the purpose of marriage was to gain security and status for your family Uh, You wanted to marry into a family that could protect you and and provide for you, help you move up the socioeconomic ladder, uh, advance in your social class. Both husband and wife wanted to marry as well as possible in terms of status, title, land, income, overall wealth. So you married the person who best helped your family's fortune and status and who produced children and especially male heirs. In traditional societies, you did not marry for love or romance or friendship. The idea of marrying for love really didn't even start to become popular and widespread until the Enlightenment period uh, in Europe, you know, in the 17th and 18th centuries. But here in the Bible, in the book of Proverbs, it says you should marry for love. In traditional cultures, you married for status and for children. uh, And the men, they pursued their, their sexual desires somewhere else. But here it says, no, you marry for love. And your lawfully wedded spouse was your exclusive sexual partner. And you've got to see how revolutionary this was for ancient cultures. Thousands of years ahead of its time on the overhead. And then the second, and then secondly, Proverbs says, speaking into a world where women had very low status, that your wife should also be your best friend. And that was unheard of. Uh, especially that it broke all the categories. Uh, No other culture preached that. Now, this resonates with us, modern readers, but do you realize how revolutionary this was and how revolutionary it still is today in most of the non-Western world? So historically, this treatment of marriage and the relationship of the spouses is incredibly notable. But I want us to also see the practical implications as well. When you say passionate romance and intimate friendship are combined, that's not easy to combine. But that's what the book of Proverbs says a marriage covenant should be. If you combine these, it creates, it creates a unique uh, relational chemical compound that no other human relationship can replicate. It's, it's totally unique. Uh, on the overhead, C.S. Lewis's famous essay on friendship, he says this, Though you can have erotic love and friendship uh, with the same person, in many ways, there's nothing less like a friendship than a love affair. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in one another. Friends are side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. That's why those pathetic people who simply want friends can never make them. The very condition for having friends is you want something else besides the friend. So if someone asks you, do you see the same truth as me? And your honest answer is, "Oh, I don't care about that. I just want you to be my friend. No friendship can arise. There' be nothing for the friendship to be about. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. Now that last statement is extremely powerful, because it's a metaphor for friendship. The essence of friendship is we have a common vision for something uh, and we both want to get there. We're fellow travelers. We have a a, a joint passion for something and we want to get there together. In contrast now, lovers are absolutely absorbed with one another. So what happens when lovers also become best friends? Where are you now going? Where's the journey? What's the common purpose on the overhead? Uh, and the answer, according to the Bible, is that when you get married, uh, you to have a passion to embark upon a journey towards that person's future greatness and future potential and future glory in the Lord. To help that person become everything they're called to be in Yeshua, the Messiah. Traditional society says get married for status and wealth and security. Modern society says get married for personal fulfillment but both are naive uh, and incomplete and shallow. The Bible says, think of the gospel. We're all made in the image of God. Uh, We're made to be something great, to be conformed to the image of Messiah himself. But we're also broken by sin. We're just pale shadows of what we were created to be. On the overhead. But Yeshua looks down upon us, sees we're just shadows of what we should be, comes into our world for the infinite humiliation of the Incarnation, lays down his life for us in the ultimate self-sacrificial act of servanthood, and for those who truly repent and and trust in him and surrender their lives to follow him, this is what Yeshua does. Uh, He comes into our life uh, through the Holy Spirit, applies what he's done on the cross to our lives, and goes on a journey with us to our future potential and future glory, to the greatness of who God made you to be in Messiah. And the overhead. Once you understand the gospel, it revolutionizes your understanding of marriage. Because what marriage then becomes is gospel reenactment. Why do you marry someone? Yes, personal chemistry is a part of it. There should be personal chemistry. But for a Yeshua follower, for a Messianic believer, it should be much more than that. Because as a believer, you should be attracted not just to who they are, but to what they're going to be. Which is one reason, why, one of many reasons why Yeshua followers may only date and court and marry Yeshua, fellow Yeshua followers. Those who share this same Messiah-centered focus and priority and ultimate destiny. A Messianic believer looks at another person... Where they're thinking of dating or courting or marrying. You know, and they should say to themselves, I see, or say to their partner here, I see flashes of your future in Yeshua. And that excites me. I see what you're becoming. You're not there yet, of course, but I see what you are becoming. I see what the Lord is making of you. And I want to be part of that. I want to encourage and guide and shepherd and travel with you to that glorious divine future journey on the overhead. So, what does marriage then become? A godly marriage becomes gospel reenactment. You have flashes of what that person is going to be, you enter into that life uh, through uh, a sacred covenant. And you say, I want to sacrifice. I want to lay down my life. I want to help and serve and minister to you. And I want you to minister to me so we can get there. I want to be part of that. Uh, There's this divine journey. Now we're truly friends biblically. Uh, We're committed to each other's future glory. And that means you no longer have a consumer mindset. On the overhead, a consumer mindset says this. I'll be the spouse that I should be only if and to the extent that you're the spouse that you should be. And if you're not being the spouse that you should be, I don't have to be the spouse that I should be. But that's not the mindset of someone who understands that marriage is gospel reenactment. What if Yeshua had that same mindset towards you on the overhead? You'd be eternally lost. The language of servant love and self-sacrificial covenant commitment, the language of the Bible, is that I'm going to be the spouse that I should be even when you're not being the spouse that you should be. Because my ultimate spouse, my ultimate lover, Yeshua the Messiah, he treated me like that. He was faithful to me even when I was not faithful to him. Is this on the overhead? Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sorry, Back. One, you're right uh, and that's the model of spousal love that we're to have set for our own spouse that Yeshua as Yeshua was faithful to me even when I was not faithful to him in the same way I commit to be faithful to my spouse even when he or she is not being faithful to me because that's what Yeshua did for us look at Romans 5 verse 8 but God demonstrated his own love for us in this while we were yet sinners Messiah died for us Yeshua loved you, not because you were lovely, but in order to make you lovely. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Messiah loved the holy congregation and gave himself up for her in order to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of the water of the word, to present her to himself in splendor, without stain or wrinkle or other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, if the Bible calls you, and it does, to be the spouse that you should be, even if your spouse is not being the spouse that they should be, and it does, well, maybe you'll object. Maybe you'll say, well, does that mean they can walk all over me? No. If that's your concern, you're not listening. Look at Proverbs 27, 17. As iron sharpens iron, as a soul friend sharpens a friend. What is ministry? You're out for the good of the other person. So the worst possible thing you could do for uh, for a selfish person is to let them be selfish. The most unloving thing you can do for a person is to let them stay unloving. So you have to confront them when they fall short. But you must do it with love and grace and kindness and gentleness. Or they will not receive it. And you must do it with patience and self-control. Because you're in a ministry. Your marriage is a ministry. You're not in your marriage just for your own self-fulfillment. You're in it for the ministry. You're in it for gospel reenactment. You're in it for husbands to lay down their lives for their wives. As Messiah laid down his life for us, his bride. And for wives, they're called to respect and to honor their husbands uh, as the priest and the spiritual head of their home. On the overhead. Lewis Smeeds he writes this. I love this quote. When I married my wife, I only had a smidgen of sense of what I was getting into. <laughs> how could I know how much she would change over the years? How could I know how much I would change? My wife has lived with five different men since we were married, and each of them has been me. <laughs> the connecting link, with my old self, with my old self, has been the memory of the name I took on the day of my wedding. The day I said, I am he who will be there with you through the journey. So don't say, I don't like the way my spouse is behaving right now, so I'm not going to behave lovingly towards them. No. If you still act lovingly towards your spouse, even even when you may not even temporarily like them, over time you will feel much more loving. Conversely, if you only act loving toward your spouse when you like them, Then over time, you'll be less and less loving. And the overhead. The more you minister to your spouse, the more you seek their good, even when you temporarily may not even like them, the deeper your love will eventually be. And the overhead. C.S. Lewis puts it like this Being in love is a good thing, but it's not the main thing. Love, as distinct from being in love, is not just a feeling, it's a deep unity. Maintained by the will, deliberately strengthened by habit, and reinforced in believing marriages by the grace of Messiah. A husband and wife can have this love for each other, even in those moments when they don't like each other. It's on this love that the engine of marriage is run. Being in love was just the explosion that initially ignited it. That's wisdom. Biblical marriage is based on covenant love, on the overhead here, these five things next to covenant love, uh, romance, friendship, gospel reenactment through self sacrificial servanthood, and a lifelong commitment to the journey of helping your spouse become their future glory self. So, on the overhead, that's what the book of Proverbs says number one, about the relationship of spouse to spouse. All right, number two, what does it say about the relationship of parents to children? How should parents relate to children? Traditional societies say the main goal of child-rearing is control. Liberal modern societies say the main goal of child-rearing is love and affirmation. But Proverbs is much more nuanced than either one of these on the overhead. The book of Proverbs says the goal of parenting is to make your children wise, not just to control them or just to affirm them, but to make them wise. Look at Proverbs 23 22. Listen to your father who gave you life. Don't despise your mother when she's old. Get wisdom and discipline and understanding. The father of a righteous man has great joy, he who is a wise son has much delight. There's a report that came out a number of years ago, this Carnegie report on child rearing, it came out a couple of years ago, and it pitched the traditional understanding of, of authoritative discipline. Versus the modern understanding of parenting uh, of affirmation and support. And this very liberal, progressive report said this. It said, the old-fashioned approach of parenting was you told your children what was right and wrong, and you disciplined them for misbehavior. But today, this report claims, the job of the parent is to build up the child's self-esteem by affirming them no matter what, and let the experts, the educators, the psychologists, let them shape your children. Professor Stanley Horowitz is at Duke University. He issued the scathing rebuke of this report. And this is what he said. We have it on the overhead. This is what he says. He says, in the area of what's right and wrong, in the area of what's good and bad, in the area of what's wise and unwise, there's no such thing as an expert. Science cannot help you a bit. For example, if you say to someone, racism is wrong, that's not a scientific statement. Science can't talk to you about human rights. Science can't prove such a thing. You're now into ethics, uh, into religion, into faith, as soon as you say something like that. And what Stanley Horowitz said uh, comes right out of the book of Proverbs, whether he knew it or not, <laughs> on the overhead. The book of Proverbs says the main job of a parent is to teach your children what's good and bad, what's right and wrong, what's wise and unwise. If you have parents have a a coherent account of what is good and bad, what's right and wrong, what's wise and unwise, and if they live consistently, and if they discipline you according to it, uh, where there's consequences if you disobey, and if you know underneath it all that they love you and delight in you, then they are parenting you properly according to the biblical principles laid out in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3, verse 11. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline, and don't resent his rebuke, for the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father of the son, he delights in. If you have a firm father and mother, notice it's both fathers and mothers together that are to discipline the children. If you have parents who are firm, who have a coherent understanding of what's right and wrong, and that you know and that you know that they love you, then even if you grow up and you turn out to turn to a different set of values, you've still been raised, you've still been reared. Your parents have done what they were supposed to do to raise you correctly, and if you turn away, it's not their fault. But on the other hand, if your parents live inconsistently, if they don't show you love and, and, and delight, if they don't train and they don't discipline, if they don't teach, then it's basically let, let you run loose, uh, some free, autonomous being, and let you make up your own mind about what's right and wrong, that's parental malpractice, according to the book of Proverbs. Your job as a parent includes instruction. You're to teach your children biblical values and morals and principles and laws and wisdom. Indeed, we emphasize this every week, don't we, when you say the via shema via hafta. Look at Deuteronomy 6, verse 7. We said it this morning. Teach them, God's, teach them, meaning teach God's commandments to your children. Talk to them all the time when you sit in your home, uh, when you walk in the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. Parents, ask yourselves today, do I do this with my children? And there must be consequences for disobedience. Proverbs 22, 15, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. Folly, or foolishness, means that children are naturally unwise. Uh, they're self-centered. They're out of touch with reality. They don't understand how others feel unless they're taught don't understand how others will, will uh, react to them uh, uh, unless again they're taught their life will be a mess unless the parents intervene and teach them wisdom what is this intervention according to proverbs 22 which is the rod of discipline the word discipline uh here in the hebrew is the word musar which means moral instruction it could also mean uh, coaching it's a combination of both instruction uh, and discipline musar uh, the word rod means to take authority. And so you put them together, the rod of discipline refers to physical chastening and correction through corporal punishment. And the context here basically refers to spanking. <laughs> but each context must be looked at uh, on its own. So take, for example, the famous Proverbs we all know, 20, Proverbs 22, verse 6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Many commentators understand this to mean Train up a child in his way, meaning make sure your training fits the nature of the child. Some children don't need corporal punishment. You know, one dirty look, they melt down in tears. <laughs> but that's not the normal rule. That, that's not the norm for most children. <laughs> most children need a lot more than just a dirty look. <laughs> but the ultimate point of the book of Proverbs about parenting is not just some knee-jerk reaction of, of command and control because your child also needs to know that you delight in them. That you have a coherent understanding. They need to know this of right and wrong. That you're instilling it in them and that there are swift and certain consequences for rebellion and disobedience. And if you do this, parents, you will have prepared your children for their future lives. That's how parents ought to relate to children. And then finally, number three on the overhead. How are children, how are they to relate to their parents? And the book of Proverbs is one key word that comes up over and over and over again. It's listed here in the negative in Proverbs 23, uh, 22. Listen to your father when he gives you life and don't despise your mother when she's old. Now, these phrases here are written in what's called a Hebraic form uh, of poetry known as synonymous parallelism, where the second phrase expands the first. So, what does it mean to listen to your father? It means not to despise your father. What does it mean to listen to your mother? It means not to despise her. Now, what's the opposite of despise? Honor. In the Ten Commandments, it says, Exodus 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother. Now, notice very interesting about the Ten Commandments it doesn't say love your father and mother, it doesn't say obey your father and mother, it doesn't say admire your father and mother, it doesn't say "Trust say, trust your father and mother. Now, of course, you should love uh, and obey and admire and trust your father and your mother. But the Bible emphasizes that most of all, you are to honor them. Why uh, uh, Why doesn't the Bible also command you to love your parents? Why does it always say throughout the Bible to honor your parents? Because there's an enormous range of situations through which you relate to your parents. You relate as an infant, as a child, as an adolescent, as an adult. And in the process, you know, in some of these stages, you know, to intrinsically and unquestionably obey your parents is crucial. And it could be a disaster for you not to. But as a grown adult, you know, living on your own, especially if you're married, have your own household, it's not always, you're not to always automatically obey everything in the the same way as, as an infant would. But not only is there a great range of stages in your relationship with your parents, There's also an enormous range of different kinds of parents. And parents are at all levels of spiritual maturity uh, and emotional maturity. And some parents are better at parenting than others. Some parents, sadly, are walking in darkness and hurt people hurt people. And that's why the Bible, in its consummate wisdom, says there's, there's one thing and only one thing, no matter what condition you're in, no matter what condition your parents are in, you must always fulfill there's only one condition and you must fulfill it you must fulfill it in society for society's sake for your conscience for your children for the lord it's absolutely crucial you do this no matter who your parents are or how well they parented you parented you you must honor them now the hebrew word used here in the ten commandments for honor is kavod which is a, a pretty wide range of meaning it means honor Dignity, respect, uh, weightiness, uh, gravitas, glory, also means glory. It means to treat your parents not lightly, but with honor and with respect. Give them weight. You must always honor your parents. That's the one constant, the moral nucleus of your relationship with them. So here I'm going to give you five practical ways to honor your parents on the overhead. Number one, in your culture, find the appropriate symbols. Uh, the head of, of the place at the table, remembering special days, how you address them, letting them speak first, letting them get the last word. Find the appropriate cultural symbols. Number two, don't underestimate your parents' need to see themselves reproduced in you. Any place you can say, I got that from you, and that's good. I learned that from you. And I'm so thankful. You know, I picked up that trait watching you, Mom, and it's so great, thank you. Anytime you can possibly say it, say it, because it honors them. Number three, do not stereotype them. Let them change. People can change. Just because they were always this certain way with you up to age 21, doesn't mean they can't change now. Number four, Never curse your parents, but forgive them. Proverbs 20, verse 20. we'll put the next slide. Uh, Next slide. Proverbs 20, 20. Thank you. If you curse your father or mother, your lamp will be snuffed out in pitch darkness. This means one of the ways to honor your parents is to forgive them. You have to forgive your parents. If you stay resentful at your parents, your life will be distorted. Uh, I remember uh, years ago, Years ago, I was trying to encourage this family to come to Uh And, and the, uh, or, or, uh, the father was, wanted to, was trying to encourage the father to come. Or if he wasn't interested, at least let his wife and his children come. Because they really, really wanted to come. They had been here several times. They, they loved the place. They had a strong interest in attending. They loved their congregation. But the father was not so excited. Uh, I had this conversation with the dad. And he said to me, I'll never forget. He said, no, I won't let my kids go to your school." Because my father forced me to go to church, and I hated it. And this is my way of getting back at him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now, notice, ironically, he's still being controlled by his father. <laughs> In his bitterness, he's trying to defy his father. But his father had won. His father had beaten him. Because his decisions about whether his family attended the EC or not, were not rational decisions. They were based on, on resentment and unforgiveness and bitterness against his father. His feelings towards his father were still controlling him. But one of the ways to honor your parents is to forgive them. Unless there was you know, some abuse or some, something similar, if you're still mad at them, you're still a child. You haven't grown up. And over your head now, uh, fifth and finally, honor your parents at the right time you also have to be liberated from them and not constantly tied to their apron strings your whole life this is most obviously the example applicable example is when you get married you know the scriptures are very clear about that genesis 224 a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and they'll be one become one flesh so at the right time you need to be able to leave and cleave to leave your parents and cleave to your spouse and this actually is a way of honoring your parents. So no matter what condition you're in, no matter what condition your parents are in, if you don't honor your father and mother, your life will be distorted. You're going to be stunted in your spiritual and emotional growth. And you will never properly grow up and become an adult. So on the overhead, this is, what the book, this is what the book of Proverbs says about the relationships between spouse and spouse, and parents to children, and children to parents. Now, finally, to close, I want us to look at briefly what the book of Proverbs says in the context of the whole Bible, and how Yeshua helps us to be the spouses and the children and the parents that we should be. So first, some of you may be saying, well, how can I do all this? I have a very difficult spouse. How can I stay on this journey? Look at Proverbs two seventeen: Who has left the partner of her youth and ignored the covenant she made before God, Please keep in mind that Yeshua also made a covenant. He made a covenant with the Father to come to earth and to make us his partners. And when he he got here, what did we do? We crucified him. Do you think your spouse is crucifying you? Yeshua's spouse, that's you and me, we really did crucify him. Yeshua got into the worst marriage the marriage from hell, <laughs> the marriage that sent him to hell, the marriage with us. And if you see him dying on the cross for you and staying with you uh, in the, the sometimes terrible marriage, if you see him showing you this ultimate faithfulness, uh, this ultimate spousal, self-sacrificial love, being faithful to you and faithful to his covenant with you, and if you embrace that, it will move you. It will change you. And if it moves you and changes your life, it's going to make you say, oh, my goodness, the Lord of the universe loves me like that. That's your only hope. Because if you make your spouse the center of your life, you're going to be a lousy spouse. If you make your spouse the most important thing to you, you're going to end up a lousy spouse. Because when your spouse has a major problem, you're going to be so freaked out or or so afraid you're not going to be strong for him or for her. And when your spouse isn't giving you what you want, you're going to be so freaked out because you've made him or her your ultimate source of worth and meaning and happiness. On the overhead, unless Yeshua is first in your life and moves out your spouse from first place, out of the center of your life, you're going to be a lousy spouse. On the overhead again, Yeshua's ultimate spousal love has to so move you that you can handle life even when your spouse isn't being all that she or he should be. And only if you let Yeshua, let Yeshua be your ultimate spouse will you then be any kind of decent spouse yourself. On the overhead. And when your spouse lets you down, your attitude needs to be, yes, you've sinned against me, but I've sinned against Yeshua far worse. And he forgave me and loved me, and covered me, so I can forgive, and love, and cover you. But you won't be able to say that unless Yeshua's spousal love has changed your life, and you've made him number one in your life, even above your spouse. Now, second, let's turn to singles who ask, how can I handle this journey of life if I want to be married and I'm not? What's my wedding going to be? Well, will I have a wedding. Well, the first step is, is to be relatively happy as a single person, because you have you because you have the ultimate spouse in your life, Yeshua, your bridegroom, God, and He will take you to your future glory self, whether or not anyone else ever covenants to help you get there. So, the first step into becoming a decent spouse is to be relatively happy. As a single, thank you. When you're at a wedding, when you're feeling, when's mine going to happen? You need to say this to yourself. There's only one person in the universe who can give me what my soul wants, what my soul longs for the most, Yeshua. And he awaits me. As the book of Revelation promises, my ultimate wedding day, the marriage supper of the Lamb, it's coming no matter what. And that's the wedding day that I need the most. And on that day, the first embrace from your ultimate lover will heal a thousand wounds and hurts and disappointments and sufferings. And that day awaits you. Yeshua is the way to handle the journey with a hard spouse. Yeshua is the way to handle the journey without a spouse. And finally, how can you look at your parents and honor them and respect them And the answer is Yeshua. Proverbs 311, my son, don't despise the Lord's discipline. Don't resent his rebuke. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son he delights in. Yeshua lost the father's delight so that he, as our savior, who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died, so that you can now have the ultimate father's delight. Yeshua lost the Father's delight on the cross. The Father forsook him so that you could have the delight of the Father if you repent and surrender your life to Yeshua. When you were young, your parents, in a way, stood in the place of God for you. Uh, They were your complete source of significance and security, your complete understanding of what's right and wrong. But as an adult, they're no longer God for you in the same way. There's only one God. And through Yeshua your true bridegroom, you've now been adopted into the ultimate home. You now have the ultimate approval of the ultimate father, which makes you free to properly honor your earthly fathers and mother, free to forgive whatever wrongs they may have committed against you, free to leave at the right time and cleave to your spouse. Only when you're in right relationship to your heavenly father can you properly honor your earthly parents. Because through Yeshua, you now have the ultimate love of the ultimate parent. Come home and embrace him and obey him and yield to him and worship him today. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. And the music team to come on up. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, we thank you for these words of wisdom from your book of Proverbs. Lord, help us today. Help us to see our own marriages as sacred, covenantal relationships Maybe for you, Lord. Help us to see our marriage covenant as both uh, law and love, uh, as, le- as a legally binding, publicly made commitment to share our entire life with our spouse till death do us part. Help us to see our spouse as both our lover and our best friend. Help us to see our marriage as gospel reenactment to lay down our life for our spouse, even as you, Yeshua, lay down your life for me. And so, Lord, I vow today to be the spouse I should be, whether or not my spouse is the spouse that he or she should be. And Lord, for all all of us who are parents, help us to raise our children with your divine wisdom, with a clear sense of right and wrong, uh, and not to be scared to use the rod of discipline when necessary but only in love, never in anger. And for all of us, Lord, help us to honor our parents. Help us to show our mother and our father dignity and respect and weightiness and honor. Help us to forgive them for any wrongs they may have committed against us. Yeshua, you are the perfect spouse. You are also the perfect son. You came to earth and died for us to make us your spouse you showed us the ultimate self-sacrificial servant-spousal love. Help us in turn, Lord, to be faithful to you, to honor and love and obey and serve you, Yeshua, for you are our bridegroom God. And in your name we pray. Amen. Shabbat shalom.